you hear this conversation in the climate movement too, like despair is always kind of at the door. And so my question is, well, as Christians, you know, how can we bring the resources of our faith to that despair? That that can't be the last word. And it, it just practically can't be the last word, because if we all just sort of melt into despair, <laughs> we're not going to engage in any kind of mitigation. And that's just not an option. Hello, and welcome. You're listening to the podcast where being labeled a heretic is a good thing. We're starting conversations about God, politics, spiritual formation, how we got here, and how we move forward post-evangelicalism. Nothing is off limits in our conversations with scholars, seekers, activists, writers, in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. We are your hosts, Kelly and Gary Allen, and welcome to Holy Heretics. Cultural historian Thomas Berry, one of the 20th century's most profound thinkers, once wrote, The destiny of humans cannot be separated from the destiny of Earth. We see quite clearly that what happens to the non-human happens to the human. What happens to the outer world happens to the inner world. If the outer world is diminished in its grandeur, then the emotional, imaginative, intellectual, and spiritual life of the human is diminished or extinguished. Without the soaring birds, the great forest, the sounds of coloration of the insects, the free-flowing streams, the flowering fields, the sight of clouds by day and stars at night, we humans become impoverished in all that makes us human. All around us, we are witnessing the death of the inner and the outer, the human and the non-human, the spiritual and the physical The current climate crisis, which has been exasperated by the COVID pandemic, is forcing us to come to terms not only with our role in the destruction of the planet, but to also ask questions about the theology that birthed this destruction. If we are going to survive as a species, we need a new way of seeing and of being. We need a creation-centered spirituality as well as a communal and connected vision for the earth and our place on it. We need a spirituality that turns destruction into regeneration, death into new life, all while inspiring others to join us in this most necessary of work. So to help us flip the script on climate change and our role as humans in helping to save the planet, we are excited to be joined today by Calvin University professor, Dr. Deborah Reenstra. Professor Reenstra attended the University of Michigan, where she received her Bachelor of Arts in English Literature, and she completed her graduate studies at Rutgers University, receiving an MA in English Literature and a PhD in Literature as well. She joined the Calvin University English Department in 1996, and her most recent book that we're talking about today is Refugia Faith, Seeking Hidden Shelters, Ordinary Wonders, and the Healing of the Earth. Her academic interests include early modern British literature, Shakespeare, and George Herbert, if I'm not mistaken. So, uh, Dr. Reenstra, welcome to the show. We're really excited to talk to you today. Thanks so much. I'm really pleased to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you. And I would love to start with just hearing a little bit more about your spiritual and scholarly journey and how it led you to become an advocate for creation-centered or ecological theology. You know, in a lot of ways, I'm a very unlikely candidate for this sort of late life ecological conversion or whatever it is I've been through, Mm -hmm. um, because I'm just a book person. I'm an English person from the get-go. You know, I have a PhD in English. I've taught English for a long time, and I've always thought of myself as a writer, Um, but I'm not an outdoorsy person per se. I'm getting better. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I have always lived in deeply theological spaces and grew up going to Christian day schools and uh, was part of this small enclave of reformed people in the sense, you know, going right back to the Reformation through the kind of Dutch immigrant pipeline. So it's actually a very intellectual tradition. Hmm. And so I've always been in a kind of theological space. So I, I think, you know, later in life when I started reading nature writing as part of my uh, research for Calvin's Festival of Faith and Writing, I just started getting more and more drawn to um, 
that kind of writing and introduced to those writers. And that led me more and more to um, explore creation theology and eco-theology. Hmm. So in the past five years, I, I think some things have come together that I didn't realize were part of my life. Um, I knew that theology was part of my life. I knew that writing was part of my life, but I didn't really understand how deeply I have already been connected to place. I've always loved Michigan. I grew up here. The mm-hmm. lakeshore is this beautiful, beautiful place that's just lived in my heart. And um, whenever I've moved away, I've lived other places for, um, I've lived other places during various parts of my life. And whenever I've moved away, I've been so homesick. And I've always been sort of embarrassed like about that because I thought, am I really that parochial? But now I realize I just have this gift of connection to place. Mm-hmm. So that that gift, along with my um, sort of soaking in theology all my life, now it makes sense that those things have kind of come together for me. Hmm. You you talk about this whole notion of place, and and I feel that as well. Um, my wife and I moved out to Colorado about twenty years ago, and and in terms of a place, it's it's incredibly beautiful. It's um, you know, high standard of living, and yet it's not my place. I, mm-hmm. I'm, it's, it's very dry. Um, I am drawn to green hills and, you know, the Irish countryside or the English countryside. Um, it, I don't know if other people feel that, but that, that sort of epigenetic draw to a place. Um, is, is there something spiritual about that or how do we make sense of feeling, as you said, at home, and then when you leave a certain environment, you might feel not at home anymore? Well, I think there's a lot of ways to look at that. Um, one is that it's it's possible that we all are kind of wired to have a different kind of spiritual internal landscape. So some people are more mm-hmm. drawn to deserts. Some people love the ocean. Some mm-hmm. people really need to be in the mountains. Um, I like a good weedy field. And a big old freshwater lake. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and then and then dunes. We have these amazing coastal dunes here in Michigan. And I took mm. them for granted as a kid. But now I realize they're really quite special. Um, so for me, you know, woods and water are my spiritual landscape. And mm. I can appreciate mountains and deserts and all those things. Um, but I go to the ocean and say, ooh, salt, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I think partly, partly we're sort of wired that way. But... But also, I think there is a deep memory in all of us for a kind of indigenous connection to place. Mm -hmm. And so at this particular moment in human history, we are, I I hope, beginning to hear again the wisdom of indigenous peoples who are saying, yeah, you're supposed to be connected to place. (laughs) That's how you were created. Right. And we have to kind of recall that. And of course, you know, as Christians, we see that right in the first chapters of Genesis. We are humans from the humus. You know, we were created from dust, the Genesis stories say. So it does make sense that there would be this kind of deep spiritual memory of connection to place. And I think that's something we need to recall right now and dwell in more than we have. Most of us are very alienated from the more than human world and from place. Mm-hmm. Um we're sheltered. We're indoors most of the time. And I say that as I am too, I'm an indoor cat, you know, me (laughs) in a book in a nice comfy chair. That's the dream. (laughs) (laughs) But we're, we're sheltered from having to make our own food to grow our own food. We're sheltered from the weather. And those are good things. I mean, I don't want to be living in a tent all my life either, but it does mean we're kind of alienated from place and that has certain costs. Yeah. Well, and it feels like, it feels like that alienation has also led to a sense of uh, lack of empathy for the earth because, I mean, we're living in an era of incredible environmental upheaval and change. And the effects of climate change are honestly no longer projections from the tree-hugging hippies, if you will. It's They're, they're measurable. We, we can see them. Um, from your seat as, as a scholar – just how bad is the crisis that we are living through? And maybe a second question, not to be too negative, but why is it that sadly us Christians, or at least evangelical Christians, have been the biggest deniers of this current crisis? 
Oof, those are good questions. Okay, I'm going to have to take these one at a time here. (laughs) (laughs) So people have been sounding the alarm about climate change for decades. Mm -hmm. And I, like a lot of us, was not listening. But as I mentioned before, it was really through the Festival of Faith and Writing that I started listening because we invited Bill McKibben to come to the festival as a writer and a writer of faith. He's Methodist. And so I read his books, in particular his book, Earth, um, E-A-A-R-T-H, which is a 2010 book. And in that book, he argues that the, the Earth itself, our planet, is already permanently altered by human presence on it. Um, basically climate change. Hmm. And I just found that book so persuasive that I started to go down this road. And then later we had Kathleen Dean Moore come to campus. And she has this amazing book called Great Tide Rising, among many of her other writings. And that book too uh, just convicted me that this climate crisis is real and serious and I can't just ignore it. I have to figure out a way to participate in what we have to do, this kind of great work that we're facing right now. Um, so, you know, as as most people experience when you get started down this path of facing the reality of the climate crisis, your first response is despair. Mm-hmm. Because Absolutely. when you look at how serious it is. So, uh, you know, maybe you have read the IPCC reports, which is this enormous endeavor sponsored by the United Nations to bring together all the world's scientists, um, well, not every last one, but a huge representation of the world's scientists, relevant scientists from many nations, 195 nations, I think is the right number, and to pool their knowledge, pool their study, and create this kind of, okay, so what do we know report? And they've been at this for a long time. So now we have the sixth assessment reports, the three main reports from the sixth assessment. And the last one, the third one just came out. Um, So there's one about the science, what we know. There's one about human impacts um, that came out a few months ago. And then there's one about um, mitigation, what we have to do. Mm -hmm. And they're all really grim. So just to put numbers on this, um, the 2018 report suggested that, well, didn't suggest, argued with evidence, more evidence than you can possibly imagine, a huge mountain of evidence, that um, to keep this planet relatively livable, we really need to keep global warming, you know, so the the um, warming that's being caused by fossil fuel emissions and mm-hmm. uh, carbon dioxide, mainly also methane, we really have to keep that warming under 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. That's the measure. Hmm. We are already at 1.1. So the stuff that we saw last summer in the United States, um, and you know, we are not the only ones experiencing these impacts, but the wildfires, the flooding, the droughts, that's Mm -hmm. at 1.1 degree. And what we know now, um, based on these IPCC reports and other reports too, is we are going to make 1.5 with without a doubt wow. we are going to hit 1.5 when so uh, by 2050 um, wow and it's we have to do everything right right now hmm. to keep it at that level hmm. and we are not doing everything right um, so that is the the sort of clarion call that these IPCC reports and others like them um, are sending to us right now. And you face that, you know, you try to face it like as much as human beings can know anything, at least empirical things, we know this stuff. Like we have applied every scientific tool we have to to figure this out. And then we have to face this. And Mm. so your first response is kind of doomsday, you know? (laughs) Absolutely. Um, And you hear this conversation in the climate movement too, like despair is always kind of at the door. And so my question is, well, as Christians, you know, how can we bring the resources of our faith to that despair? That that can't be the last word. And it, it just practically can't be the last word, because mm-hmm. if we all just sort of melt into despair, <laughs> we're not going to engage in any kind of mitigation. And that's just not an option. You know, right. we all want to survive. That's just not an option. So we, we have to move through that despair to a kind of courage and determination and so what I've been kind of working through for myself and then through this book too is 
how do I move through those stages um, using the resources of the Christian faith? I can't stay with despair. Um, I, I have to move through to courage and action. What about the Christian faith can help me do that? So that's mm. really what I've been um, trying to work on in these last few years. And I think as a person who's, as I said before, you know, kind of an unlikely candidate, that actually makes me a really good test case. Mm, so like if I can kind of change my thinking in my life and, and even my faith practices, then other people t- can too, because I didn't come at this with any advantage. Um, I'm not a scientist. I'm not like a kayaker. <laughs> um, you know, I don't, I don't own any kayaks. Um, although it's, it is fun. Kayaking is fun. Absolutely. But I do have this connection to place and, um, I can read books and I can write and I can use the kind of theological resources that I've just been given as the gift of my upbringing and my scholarly work. So that's what I'm trying to do. I love that. Speaking of books, your new book is titled Refugia. Have I said that correctly? Yeah. So Refugia Faith, Seeking Hidden Shelters, Ordinary Wonders, and the Healing Earth. Can you give us some background for the term refugia and how it intersects with faith? Sure. So this was the moment of epiphany for me. And it it kind of happened when Kathleen Dean Moore was on campus at Calvin University in 2019. She gave this amazing lecture and I read her book, Great Tide Rising, that I mentioned. And there are four pages in this book where she describes this biological phenomenon of refugia. And the the definition, the biological definition of refugia is that they are habitats that components of biodiversity retreat to, persist in, and can potentially expand from under changing environmental conditions. Hmm. So they're basically these little places, they can be really tiny. They're basically little places where life endures in a crisis. Hmm. So the example that she gives in her book is the eruption of Mount St. Helens in 1980, which spread this horrible, like apocalyptic ash you know, right. everywhere for miles, layers of this horrible stuff. And it was like a moonscape. And biologists looked at the volcano after it erupted and, or the mountain, you know, after it erupted and and said, yeah, that's it. We're not going to see life here for decades. Hmm. And lo and behold, 20 years later, the whole mountainside had greened up. Hmm. And this was because even under those layers of ash, there were tiny, tiny little refugia, like wow. under a log or, you know, just in the little place that was sheltered, there was moss or little flowers or voles. And it was from these tiny, tiny little places of surviving life that the mountain was able to green up again. Hmm. So there's a a whole area of biology called refugial conservation biology that uh, studies this phenomenon everywhere. And the minute I I read that and heard Kathleen D. Moore speak, it just occurred to me, wait a minute, of course, you know, English professor, I'm going to make it into a metaphor. (laughs) It just occurred to me, wait a minute, isn't that what Christians are supposed to be? Like, Mm -hmm. aren't we supposed to be the people of refugia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't necessarily mean like moss and wildflowers, although that too, but aren't we the people, <laughs> right? Yeah. Aren't we the people that find places where life, spiritual life, you know, real life survives, mm-hmm. spiritual and physical life? And aren't we supposed to be the people that nurture those even mm-hmm. even in places of death? Mm-hmm. Isn't that what Christianity is? It's that crux where death mm-hmm. and life intersect. So I started thinking about this metaphor and exploring it with people, and um, it just seemed to me that this true biological phenomenon is a great model for how we as people of faith can respond in a time of crisis. And in particular, there's kind of a literal application of that in the context of the climate crisis, but we're living through all kinds of crises right now. We're kind of in the land of crisis convergence. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. And it just, right? And it seems to me that if we think of the refugia way as a posture that hmm. we can take as people yeah. of faith, it's kind of a way through that despair and that feeling of being overwhelmed um, that allows us once again to to find trust and to find something to do, to find action. Hmm. Mm. What a beautiful wow. image. 
I love that. Yeah, you know, and it reminds me of the monastic movement kind of like late 3rd century, 4th century where uh, Christianity had just been dominated by a Constantinian sort of militant crusading version and the folks who were looking for a new version of faith, you know, left the the center. They went out and had these little tiny enclaves, these pockets of life and rejuvenation and a new kind of spirituality was birthed. And you, yeah, it was kind of like looking and going, well, I guess it's over. I mean, 300 years after Jesus, this is really not working. <laughs> and, and yet, <laughs> and yet people like, no, we're not going to give up on it, but we have to do it a different way. Yeah. And it, it might be in, in very tiny ways. So I don't know. Exactly. That that's just that's what I thought when you when you said that. So yeah. Well, you know, I started to think about the Bible, and I started to look at the Bible through this lens, and realize that I think God really likes refugia, <laughs> because if you think about how God works, say in the in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the story of Israel, they're this tiny little tribe that never amounted to a gigantic empire, right? <laughs> Even in their very best days, they were just a tiny little kind of insignificant kingdom. And yet it was through Abraham, Abraham and his little family that God plants the seed. And it's through Abraham that all peoples are going to be blessed. And, and it's through Israel that the Redeemer comes. And it's through Israel, Israel's witness to the world that all nations would be blessed. And then you think about Jesus. Jesus, too, does not come into the world as a conqueror. He's right. got 12 disciples and a bunch of hangers on. And, you know, yeah. he was not a, a person who conquered the earth. He came as a witness and as a seed and as savior through this kind of kingdom that begins with a mustard seed. So yeah. it just occurred to me, huh, you know, maybe this is. This is how God likes to work. It's this kind of upside down through the small and hidden and ordinary um, through which God's power can really bring life to bear, bring life mm -hmm. to um, a kind of flourishing. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. So I want to ask you about the this, I would say the spirituality or the spiritual components of sort of echo theology. And so for me, at least, I've been impacted late in life by Celtic spirituality. Uh, it's sort of a, I'm sure you know that, you know, the, the ancient Celts were not necessarily Romanized. Uh, therefore, their theology was a little bit more wild. It was less colonized. And I, I've been impacted by that. And, and through that journey, I begin to see things like, well, no, the earth isn't bad. It's actually sacred. Or, gosh, there really is no distinction between secular and sacred, heaven and earth, divine and enfleshed. And then, of course, from there, I, I sort of realized, hey, there's a word for this. It's panentheanism. And, <laughs> I, you know, I have no idea if I'm one of those or not. It's a big word. But I do really believe that God is both imminent right here with us and transcendent. As a scholar uh, Ronald Miller said, God is the ultimate with. And, mm. and or as uh, Mechtilde of Magdeburg, uh, Magdeburg wrote, the day of my spiritual awakening was the day I saw and knew I saw all things in God and God in all things. Can you talk about mm that perspective as 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 a way to to maybe motivate the Christian community who has been sitting on the sidelines of the climate uh, war and as it relates to what does it mean I guess for you uh, to know and and believe that you live in a, a sacred universe yeah so you asked before about, why um, American evangelicalism has been foot dragging on the climate crisis? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I didn't really, I didn't really get back to that question, but here's here's where we can talk about that. Um, there's there's a strong theological strain or motif throughout Christian history, and you're describing it really beautifully. And it's it's this idea that, um, and I think this is an orthodox idea that God is both imminent and transcendent. That's really mm. just orthodoxy. Mm. If we are people who believe in the incarnation, 
then we can't have any kind of ultimate separation between God and this world. Um, the incarnation was not just an errand that Jesus ran, you know, quick minute, right, right. put on a body, go back to heaven. Right. No, I mean, the, right? God has taken materiality into the divine person, into the mm-hmm. divine Godhead. Um, so, yeah, that that disrupts any notion of dualism that we might have. And we believe that the creation was made through the power of the Spirit, right? Through the Son, through the power of the Spirit, um, and that the Spirit of God dwells in creation. So there, there can't be this separation. Um, and so I, I think you have to notice the kind of historical trend um, where that separation happened. And it goes back to the beginning, of course. There's always this sense um, throughout, across cultures and throughout history, of the spiritual being somehow higher than the physical. That's mm-hmm. that's not uniquely Western. Um, we see it all over the place. But in Western theology and in Western culture, that became rather... Um, in Western theology and Western culture, we got a kind of extreme version of that in the 17th and 18th centuries during the Enlightenment. And, you know, I'm a fan of the Enlightenment. Reason is a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> but we could probably well, use some more of it now. Maybe we took it more reason. Right? But, um, you know, you have this kind of extreme separation of the spiritual from the physical. And that was promoted theologically mm-hmm. in this yeah. period. You can see it happen. You know, I'm Absolutely. a student of literature and early modern literature. You can see it happen. There always are strains of resistance against it. Um, but it's so powerful because it's basically the theology that undergirds the Industrial Revolution and colonialism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the person who's really good on this point is Willie James Jennings, Jennings, the theologian Willie James Jennings, um, who describes in just exquisite detail this moment when conquerors from Europe came to the New World and separated people from land. Mm. And basically said, Christianity is about a soul, about your soul, and it has nothing to do with your bodies or your land. Hmm. And that enables colonialism and basically the concept of race and racism. Yeah. And Um, by the way, we want your land and we will take it because – Exactly. Right. Yes, exactly. Right. And it also enables uh, the Industrial Revolution by saying that this – Earth and everything in it is simply our grocery store and our sewer. It -hmm. has no significance of its own. It's just objectified. And you can see the theological um, defense of this idea in this period, just in spades. And so here we are, right? We have abused the creation, abused the more than human creation, and we have... um, been embroiled in this colonialist project and now we're reaping the results of that mm-hmm. all of mm-hmm. us yeah wow what a good perspective thank you for pulling on your history perspective as well to really enlighten us um as we look today who are some of the theologians authors and voices within the christian tradition that you've drawn on to lead you down this path and why would you say their voices are so important for us today so when i first started learning about ecotheology it felt like this missing piece. I knew all about soteriology and, you know, reformed theology and um, even creation theology, but this perspective was something new and it was so exciting. I just took to it right away. Um, And it, it sort of uncovered this thread in the Christian tradition of attention to the more than human creation and of God's love for the created world, which has been there. It's in the scriptures. It's in the Bible that the created world is valuable to God, even apart from human beings. I mean, we're in there too, right? We're special. Sure. Nothing diminishes that. Um, (laughs) But God has a relationship with the rest of creation, even apart from human beings. You can see it in the Psalms, in the rejoicing um, of the the hills skipping and the Mm -hmm. um, oceans rejoicing, right? You can Mm -hmm. see it there. You can see it in Job, the end of Job, when God answers Job in the whirlwind and really says not much at all about Job's suffering, but says instead, you know, look at this wild earth that I've created. Hmm. It seems kind of off topic, but but I think it's 
God's way of saying, you know, reality, existence, the cosmos is so much bigger Mm -hmm. than just you. And we are just relentlessly anthropocentric. Mm. And so to, to discover and reflect on God's presence in creation, God's love for creation, and a kind of reconstituting of a humbler role for human beings in creation, um, that has just been hugely life-giving to me. And I think, you know, you asked about who am I reading and who's been important to me. Lots of people, and fortunately, I have sort of gathered it all on my website under my suggested resources tab. Oh, fantastic. And of course, the, you know, many, many footnotes in the book. Um, I would say I've learned definitely from Christian voices, but also from a lot of non-Christian voices. Mm. And that has also been really wonderful and life-giving. So for Christian voices, Willie James Jennings is really important. Um, I know you had Randy Woodley on your podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He's awesome. Yeah. He has been really helpful to bring indigenous ways of thinking in conversation with Christian theology. And so he has a couple terms that are just so great. So he suggests in his book, Shalom in the Community of Creation, that we think about the word kingdom, that when we read the word kingdom in the Bible in the New Testament, we replace that with the phrase community of creation. Hmm. So the community of creation is near, right? And I just think that's really generative. And then his way of thinking about the role of human beings in the world is he he uses the word co-sustainers, hmm. which I really appreciate. Um, I'm I'm sure your listeners have heard the word steward. You know, we're supposed to be good stewards. We're supposed to have dominion. And I, I think those terms um, have kind of gone past their expiry date now. <laughs> yep, agree. Um, so we need kind of new terms. And, and I really like co-sustainers. And I also really like um, the phrase partners in earth healing. Mm-hmm. Because I, I think we, we have to um, set aside our anthropocentrism and this idea that we are rulers and even stewards. Because it, it makes us almost more important than we are. And it it's, makes it seem as if nothing is going to happen on this earth unless we do it. But that's not the case. We're actually quite small and there's a lot we don't know. And we do have a tendency to wreck things. Definitely. You know, if we think of ourselves as partners, partners with God and partners with the other creatures, that I think puts us in a much better perspective. Hmm. That Hmm. our job is to work with, by the power of God, with God's guidance and with the other creatures toward the healing of the earth. So this idea that we're, we're not just stewards or keepers of what is, but our responsibility now is to recognize the damage and the urgency of mitigating that damage. And so we actually have to be healers, not just stewards or rulers, but healers. And we have to do that in conjunction with others. So um, yeah, Randy Woodley's great. I mentioned Bill McKibben. I think he's just such a good explainer of the issues. Um, he has a book on Job that's wonderful. He's not really a theologian, but um, he does come to this from a Christian point of view personally. Um, I, I learned a lot from the Lutheran theologian Paul Santmeyer. He has a, a book that I mentioned in my book, too, that is kind of a summary of um, what he calls the ecological motif in the scriptures and then in Western theological tradition anyway. And then I've also learned a lot from Robin Wall Kimmerer, who's not a Christian or a theologian, Mm. but her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, is just a whole different way to look at our role as human beings um, with the kinship of the other creatures. And honestly, I think it resonates with Christianity just beautifully. Mm -hmm. So her idea of reciprocity that we not only can give to creation, but creation gives to human beings too. We receive the gifts of creation and we often receive those by taking them for granted and without much gratitude. And so her emphasis on gratitude, I just found so convicting and really demonstrated to me how um, even in a healthy faith community, I think I live in a healthy faith community more or less, even there, I feel like we are very insufficiently grateful mm-hmm. for what the earth gives to us. So yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, I mean, her voice too, and these indigenous voices, I think, are really important. Um, liberation theologians have always been very connected to the practical, the real, the political, um, in ways that once again undercut that kind of dualism where mm-hmm. Christianity is all about the soul and the spiritual, and you know, whatever kind of happens on earth doesn't matter because that's material and temporary and thus inferior. I just don't think that's orthodoxy and liberation theologians, you know, have been insisting on that for a number of decades now. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, and you mentioned too, Gary Ellen, you mentioned Celtic spirituality. So, you know, as you said, this, this goes back in the Christian tradition. It's not like new or newfangled. It's always been there. We've just kind of lost sight of it. Yeah. Hmm. I'm, I'm currently reading. In fact, we have a book club. You can join us if you want. Um, we have a book club that meets once a, once a month for all of our Patreon members. And we are currently uh, reading Original Blessing by Matthew Fox. And Oh, yes. You know, and I don't think Fox goes far enough, um, but he's just introducing this notion of a, a creation-centered spirituality and the fact that we are first and foremost all connected to one another. We are all connected to place. And and then, of course, as you said, God is connected and relational as well. And, and I think so many of our theologies have been that we sit above the earth, we sit above all the other created things, and almost in a sort of hierarchy where it does feel like we're being invited to maybe step down off that ladder and go, hey guys, like we all belong here, um, and 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 we are all connected to not only one another but every created thing. And then, how could we potentially make decisions that aren't necessarily based on pragmatism and money? Um, <laughs> and I honestly, yeah. I don't, I don't really know how to do that. I mean, we, we live mm. in a, a beautiful Northern part of Colorado Springs that was of course, indigenous land that was taken. And now my house and I, and I'm guilty of this as well, because I, I built a house here, but my house is now on former prairie land that, um, the animals have been driven from and we continue to just see the the rape of the earth with more and more and more um uh, building projects that are going on and you think is there ever going to be any more wild land left um i I don't even have a question beyond just a lament (laughs) that Yeah. yeah i just i just feel like everything is becoming um corporate and everything is is has been through the notion of dominionism like well but we're supposed to do this you know this things well the notion that things are wild seems to be bad and so we have to bring order to it and order looks like um uh you know pavements and houses and streets and lights what do we do yeah. to yeah. potentially save those last bits of the earth that really are wild Well, the good news is there's a lot of that going on. Mm -hmm. And that's maybe the next stage of becoming aware of the climate crisis and um, sort of converting (laughs) to Mm -hmm. being involved in climate mitigation is the excitement of seeing how many people are already doing amazing things. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to do. I don't mean to diminish how much there is to do, and it's going to require governments and businesses and individuals all working together, all hands on deck. But there's a lot going on already. And what, what you're describing is this kind of end game of corporate capitalism and colonialism and all this kind of spirit of domination approach to the created world, this hierarchical anthropocentrism. Can't believe I spat all those syllables out there. But yeah, (laughs) you know, like- Better you than us. I've been practicing. Um, (laughs) But what we're seeing now too, is not only like people doing a lot of practical things, but this kind of wisdom convergence that is renewing us into this way of thinking as kinship um, and reciprocity, Mm. as you were describing. Matthew Fox is part of that. Um, I really like Thomas Berry, Catholic Mm, geologian from the 90s. I think he had a lot of really wise things to say. But it's not just these kind of theologians and philosophers. It's also science recognizing 
um, the kind of interconnectedness, not only of ecosystems, but like our interconnectedness with microbes, the mm-hmm. microbes that live inside. I mean, it's you can't really scientifically divide human beings from this earth that we live on. We are mm. so interdependent. So that's science too. And then this kind of renewal of indigenous wisdom. So all of that sort of wisdom convergence, I, I think is making it possible not only to create this practical turn toward a new era, um, Thomas Berry calls it the symbiocene. <laughs> um, <laughs> people have different names for it, you know. So moving from the Anthropocene to some new era, what's that going to look like? What's that going to be called? I don't know. Um, but there's a kind of philosophical and um, spiritual turn, and you know, you you see this in the in the Pope's Laudato Si um, encyclical. You can see the push there. You can see it in the um, Ecumenical Patriarch of the Orthodox Church is very involved in this too. So you kind of see the the big religions making this turn. And then just practically, there's a lot of great stuff going on. So you mentioned ecosystem restoration. Um, I, I think that is becoming more and more, not mainstream quite, but it's a much stronger marginal practice now. Mm-hmm. Um, next week, I'm going to go see Douglas Tallamy, who's speaking here in Grand Rapids. And he wrote this book called Nature's Best Hope, where he proposes that if any of us who own any land at all would take just half of our lawn, any grass, which is not a terrible thing, but mm. it's um, it depop- it po- oh, I can't think of the right word here, but <laughs> the idea is that it diminishes the number of species that can live right. because it's yep. not native, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. So if we all just renativized half, we would have what he calls homegrown national park, and mm. it would be larger in acreage than six of our biggest national parks put together. Wow. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. So that's kind of cool. And then um, people are talking now about wildlife corridors. And this Mm -hmm. goes directly back to refugia. Because if refugia are going to survive, persist, and grow, a lot of the ways they do that is to connect through corridors. Mm-hmm. So if you think, for example, of a, say, a bear population that has been diminishing because of habitat destruction, so people building houses and things. If you think of a bear population that's diminishing and diminishing, let's say there are four little refugia, little wood, wood, woodsy areas where the bears are surviving, four little refugia, but they're all separate. So what's going to happen is the bear population is going to die out because there's not mm-hmm. sufficient um, diversity, biodiversity there. Um, just genetic diversity in the bear population. But if they can connect, the bears can find each other and they have a much better chance of coming back. So that kind of conservation movement and corridor creation um, is going to make more and more possible. And so Mm. the more of us who are just sort of aware of this and able to push for it in whatever way we're able, whether that's regenerative agriculture or this kind of wildlife conservation, um, you know, half the earth um, by 2050, 50 by 50% by 2050 is one possible um, option that people are talking about. So the more of us who are just sort of aware of this and can push for it, the more likely these things can happen. And, Mm. you know, I think we just have to believe in the resilience of life, um, and not just relax into a kind of passivity about that, but mm-hmm. to to believe in the resilience of life, to believe in the resilience that God has put into this creation that is so remarkable. And sometimes all, all it takes is just for us to get out of the way and stop yeah. wrecking things. Yeah, right. Seriously. Right. I love that. I was going to ask, you said uh, earlier in one of your answers that um, this theology and an approach to the earth has changed your life. Can you tell us um, how your life has changed? I'm outdoors a lot more. Hmm. I'm a more ambitious gardener now, although I'm still very much a tiny beginner. And mostly I think I've just been learning and paying attention. So Hmm. this comes back to just what writers are always going to tell you, which is to pay attention. Yeah. (laughs) And to, I've learned a lot of species names um, of trees and plants and birds um, in Michigan. 
I've spent a lot more time learning about our coastal dunes. I sat in on my colleague's class. I have a colleague at Calvin University who is a Aeolian geomorphologist. Is that oh, just wow. the coolest name? Yeah, we're um, that's name, her field. We're going to name this episode that. I can't even yeah. say it, but that's Definitely. what we're going to name it. Good luck spelling it, too. Yeah. That's going to be fun. I mean, part of my pleasure in learning all about the science and the theology is just learning all these new cool words, so like totally. refugia. Um, so, yeah, I sat in in her class and learned a lot more about coastal dunes, and um, I've just become a lot more involved in local land conservancies. Hmm. Um, I have a group at my church. We're called the Refugia Team. Of course, that was not my idea. That was their idea. <laughs> and we're um, renativizing um, part of our property at our wow. church. Wow. So I've been in the mud doing a lot of planting. And you know what? It's great. I mm-hmm. love it. Yeah. It is so good just to um, get back connected with the soil, the mud, um, the physicality of it has just been a joy to me. And I, I don't want to diminish, um, you know, the, the, the real serious lament that we have to undertake for species extinction that mm-hmm. is irreversible and the damage we have done and the environmental injustice. I don't want to diminish any of that. And I think lament is an appropriate and necessary Christian response but there's also joy in the doing of the work that has yeah, to be absolutely. done. And that has really surprised me. Um, and, you know, I realize I'm speaking from the comfort of my nice little white middle class world here. Um, but the connections that I've made with people who are doing this work and the things that I've learned and the the feeling of agency and being able to do something about it mm-hmm. has been really exciting and life-giving. And on those days when I am still discouraged, I just look around at all these amazing people and I just think, you know, mm-hmm. God is up to something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we have done with our kids, as you said a while ago, is pay not only to pay attention, but to educate ourselves. And so we started watching for the migration of the birds and began studying that and like, okay, well, the grackles are here. Well, they're the big bad bullies. We don't really like them, but they're here. <laughs> they're here for three months. And so how do we then provide food for the grackles that won't drive off the wrens and the robins and all the other birds that are in our backyard? And so I, you know, I'll be honest, like I was a late adapter to that. My, my wife and children were the ones who are like, hey, let's rewild the backyard. And I'm like, hey, let's not. You know, I like <laughs> I, I like my grass and my, my little posted stamp um, yard, like perfect. And so we even tried that. We added like just a four foot uh, parameter around our yard where I, I was like, okay, I'm not going to grow. I'm not going to cut this the entire summer. And I know our, our, you know, our neighbors are like, what's going on there? But it did, it, it brought in new life. Um, you could get in there and see like, oh, there's bunnies in here. Um, there are all kinds of moths. There are different kinds of bugs that are growing because all we did was just let the earth do its thing as opposed to put pesticides on it and as, and as opposed to cutting the yard. Um, so I think there are like a thousand different ways that allow you not only to pay attention but to educate, but then as you said, to, to provide agency. Like what is one thing I could do to make a difference where I live? And I don't know that to me, yeah. that is very empowering, you know? Yeah, I so. agree. And and I think those of us who have agency um, have the responsibility to think about people who have a lot less agency. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the truisms about the climate crisis is that the, the people who have done the least to create it are feeling the worst effects and feeling it first. Yeah. Um, so there, that's the, the kind of fundamental principle of environmental injustice behind this. So I think we have to work very locally and also work globally in whatever ways we can um, mm. through whatever political advocacy is is open to us or you know whatever whatever you're good at do and then that local that local action is so important because it models for your neighbors right your neighbors are thinking why are you not mowing your lawn and then right, maybe they get right. a little jealous because <laughs> it takes a little <laughs> less work right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's modeling for others, but it's also so important to have those 
those little senses of satisfaction and joy that keep us going. Yeah. And it is amazing how quickly this happens. You know, I, we did some work in our own yard too. We had a really bad buckthorn situation when we moved into our house. Buckthorn is a non-native invasive and it's just, mm. as you say, a bully, you know? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And um, so it took us a long time to get rid of the buckthorn. But once we started planting native things, just in two summers, the difference was remarkable. Hmm. The birds, wow. the pollinators, the wildflowers, um, you know, nature is powerful. And if we mm -hmm. can partner with it with some wisdom and you have to kind of know what you're doing, um, then things can change really fast. And, and that kind of tangible difference um, can really help us keep going when things seem discouraging. Wow. That's awesome. I love that. Yeah. So, Deborah, that was sort of the last of our formal conversation. But if you've listened to the show, you also know we kind of throw a little curveball to everyone who joins us. And so it's not a big curveball, but it's a little one. We would love <laughs> to just ask you some fun, rapid fire, like random questions to end the show. Would that that'd be okay with you? I'm ready. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, All right. fantastic. All right. Here okay. we go. The first question I have for you. As a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, um, gosh. See, you're not, I don't see know. you're not ready after all. Well, what I didn't know saying. what you were going to ask me. <laughs> um, probably a musician. Whoa, what would you oh. have played? That's a follow up the question. Viola. I wow. play the viola. I'm just okay. not that good at it. Wow. But I loved music. I loved music and books. I, I think I probably wanted to be a writer, too. I just didn't admit that to myself for a long time. Hmm. Um, but yeah, definitely in the arts. Um, I have a really deep love for the arts that has seen me through a, a lot of life. Um, my parents were not thrilled with that plan. So that <laughs> might be why I kind of kept it a secret. But yeah, probably something well, to do with the arts. That. Viola. Awesome. Wow. All right. So you are an English scholar. What is one British novel? Because I'm an Anglophile. What's one British novel that every student should read and why should they read it? Hmm. Well, I, my period of study is actually the early modern period before the existence of the novel. Okay, so, so I don't I'm even know take... enough to ask the right question then. So go for it. <laughs> That's okay. I, I mean, you should read them all. You'd read them all. Um, but I would say one of the things that I really enjoy teaching, let's answer it this way. Okay, two of the things that I really enjoy teaching are Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen from the 1590s, which okay. is a very long epic poem. And it's very difficult, but it is so gorgeous. And it's full of um, really surprising spiritual insight. So I hmm. love teaching students how to read Spencer because at first he's completely impenetrable. And then once they get the hang of it, um, at least, at least some of them really catch on and groove on it. So Spencer's fairy queen. Uh, my colleagues will just die to hear that because some of them really don't like the fairy queen. <laughs> and then um, the other book that I would say, I don't know you if you can live a rich and full life without it is um, George Herbert's poems in the mm. temple, the volume called the temple. George Herbert, one of the greatest devotional poets of all time in any language. I will make that claim and stand yeah. firmly behind it. Um, yeah, I, I have needed those poems in my life. And, and he's just so honest about spiritual life and about the ups mm. and downs of the spiritual life. So, yeah. Hmm. We, I love and, that. and didn't he write tons of hymns? I feel like as an Episcopalian, we are constantly oh. singing a George Herbert hymn, mm -hmm. right? Oh, no, a couple of his poems have been set to hymn tunes. Okay, you might be thinking of Isaac is. Watts, eh, who's a little so. bit later. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like the name is familiar for some reason. So, Our next question, although you've already touched on this, you're a professor. So what is your favorite undergraduate course that you teach and why? Oh, I have two of them. Oh, great. This is an easy answer. Shakespeare. I love teaching okay. Shakespeare. It is so much fun. <laughs> Shakespeare oh, I love that. brings out the best in students. They, I don't know, Shakespeare makes them smarter. It's true. 
Um, I love the passion that you have for this. I've had to learn Shakespeare from some professors and you know what? They didn't have the same passion. So (laughs) I think maybe the way you teach it makes it amazing. Well, on the first day of class, I ask students if they have Shakespeare, high school Shakespeare trauma. And a lot of times they do. So we we work through that on day one. (laughs) But yeah, um, you know, I, I don't, yeah, I don't bow down and worship Shakespeare as like, you know, a god. But the plays are just so rich and great, and um, they do have a kind of timeless quality to them. Mm-hmm. And we, yeah. we definitely talk about historical context, and there's a lot you need to know about the historical context to really understand the plays well. But that class is always so much fun. And then mm-hmm. my other favorite is creative nonfiction, hmm. which oh, I um, teach quite often every year about. And that, too, it's just such a privilege to read um, – what students write when they're being a little vulnerable and when they're taking true experiences and trying to make artistic essays out of them. Um, Mm. And, you know, you kind of just have to hold, hold that in a place of honor when they're willing to be vulnerable like that with, with me and with each other. So I love teaching that class. Um, Nice. It's just very life-giving. Awesome. All right. My last question if Hollywood made a movie about your life, who would play you? Oh, Anne Hathaway, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was phenomenally quick. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, great. Not that uh, I thought about it or anything. No, right. Uh, you, you definitely have. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really haven't. But okay, okay. That just no, seems that. like the right answer. That's a great answer. Wow. I do love Anne. Um, my last question If you were a spy, what would your code name be? And let's, a- let's see if you can answer as quickly. Yeah. <laughs> Anne Hathaway. Yeah. Anne. Um what a great question. That is just a mystifier. Um that would be a good spy name, the mystifier. mystifier. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'll take it. I'll take it. I like that. Yeah. I I uh, That's my I'll... superhero name. How about that? Yeah, that's a great superhero yeah. name. That's my yeah. superhero name and it's probably what students would call me when they have no idea what I'm talking about in class. <laughs> the mystifier. The mystifier. I think you should put that above your faculty office door tomorrow. Yeah. I'm the mystifier. That's your new brand for sure. Oh man. Hey Deborah, this has been incredible. Thank you so much for uh, joining us, for lending us your wisdom and your mm-hmm. scholarship. And for those of us who want to go buy this book, um, can you tell us a, just a, a bit about why we all need to read it and where we can find it? Sure, I'd love to. So Refugee of Faith is really about how Christian spirituality and practice must adapt to prepare, prepare for a life on a climate-altered planet. So it's the story really of grappling with our crisis convergence and trying to bring to bear the resources of the Christian faith for how to do that. So it's organized by seven transformations that um, it feels like we we need to be making right now. So for example, from alienation to kinship or from consuming to healing. Mm. And those seven transformations are mapped onto the liturgical year so that each one, um, that, that was the way I chose to kind of gather theological themes. So it begins with Advent, and then the next chapter's related to Christmas, then Epiphany, and so on. And then um, there's also the added, super, super added value bonus of nature writing about Michigan. So the examples mm-hmm. are about Michigan in the chapters, but then there's these interstitial chapters where I'm just kind of demonstrating what it's like to dwell where you live and to learn about it and um, just to sort of rejoice in the beauties of it. Hmm. And then as an extra super value added bonus, there are beautiful original drawings by a Calvin University undergraduate, Gabrielle Hmm. Isma. So it's just a beautifully produced book. Fortress did a really great job. And I just hope it's a way for people who are, you know, worried about the climate crisis, um, People of people who are Christians worried about the climate crisis, whatever their relationship may or may not be to the church, this is a way in. This is a a, a book that you know I've kind of read all the books, so you don't have to. <laughs> not all <laughs> right, of them, right. but I read a bunch of books, so you don't have to. It's just a way in to start thinking about this whole situation of the climate crisis from a faith perspective. Um, drawing on the resources of the faith and finding a way to live as people of refugia. Hmm. Wow. Remarkable. And, uh, 
Yeah, Deborah is really great. And I, w- I want to say, too, like you guys have something going on at Calvin because. Oh, yeah, we do. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got your work here, Kristen Dumay's work. Um, I- I'm going to ensure that my daughter goes and visits Calvin when she's ready for college, because truly there is something happening in the powerful female voices that are coming from that part of the world. So thank you for lending your voice mm-hmm. to that. I really appreciate yeah. you saying that. And if any of your listeners have 18 year olds lying around, send them our way. We'd love to have them at Calvin. <laughs> Sounds if, great. Uh, well, if people want to learn more about the book, you can go to my website at debrareenstra.com. That's D-E-B-R-A-R-I-E-N-S-T-R-A.com. Uh, there's information about the book at Fortress Press, too. Um, I also have a podcast, Refugia Podcast, which I'm going to record season three of this summer. Wow. And um, I have a newsletter, too, and you can find that at my website. Wonderful. And we will put all that in the show notes. And um, we would love to have you on in the future. Thank you so mm-hmm. much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. This was so much fun. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society and written by Kelly Lamb and Gary Allen Taylor. Music is by Faith and Foxholes. If you want more resources to help your spiritual formation and your reconstruction journey, head to sophiasociety.org for articles, online courses, our free ebook, and don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. See you next time.